In the deep forest of India, there's a man whose name is Eliah. Eliah is a poor man, an untouchable, an outcast forgotten by the world. He's a man with very little to his name other than the clothes on his back. But there's two things he had plenty of, anger and alcohol. He worked all day in the hot sun for a few rupees, would go home at the end of each long day and eat one meal of rice that was all he could afford. And then he'd wash it down with enough rice alcohol to make him forget that great sadness within him, even if it was just for a few hours in the darkness. His life felt as meaningless as it was mundane. He lived a dark Saturday kind of life. That was his normal. Then one day, Elias' son got sick. His young, precious little son. They tried everything they could, but he only got worse. They were helpless to do anything about it, and they were left to simply watch and wait in powerlessness. And then tragedy, his son died. And so all of that meaningless and mundane was now added the crushing weight of misery. But Eliah remembered an old pastor that used to come to his village and talk about a man named Jesus. And Eliah knew that pastor very well. Because on many occasions, he'd beaten him with sticks, driven him out of his village, beat him within an inch of his life. He took out all of that anger and rage on this pastor who would dare preach that hope was a possibility. Who would dare preach that there was a different way of seeing and understanding the world. But on this tragic day, that pastor was the one person Eliah wanted to find most. Eliah's gods hadn't helped, so he thought he'd try a new one. But would this pastor help him after all that he'd done to him? When he finally found the pastor, he delivered an ultimatum. Elias said this, You say your God can raise the dead? You will come and pray for my son. And if your God will raise him from the dead, I will give him my life. But if he doesn't, then I'm going to take yours. I'm going to kill you. Most shockingly of all, the pastor went with him. He agreed to the terms of engagement. He got up, traveled with Eliah to his village, walked into the hut, laid his hands on the lifeless little boy, and he prayed. He prayed for him to come back to life. He prayed for resurrection. From the first time I heard that story sitting on a bus in that same deep forest, I've so wished that I could have been there in that moment. It's a story that's already so compelling enough just to have watched this moment of absolute human desperation play out. But then to add to it the slightest hope of resurrection, well, that places it in a category that would make even the most hardened skeptic Take notice. And I've often thought, if I were there, who would I have watched in that moment? The pastor? The boy? Who would have gotten my attention? 
I think at this point I'd settle my attention on Eliah because I'd want to see what happened on his face when he watched his son open his eyes. I'd like to see the look on his face when he watched his son resurrected. And in that moment, he was given a new normal. But here's the real question. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Even as a Christian, you hear me tell that story. And you still feel that tug of doubt rise in your heart. You're looking for a way out. You're looking for something to explain it away. Maybe there was a detail that went unnoticed, a weak pulse, a quick rush to judgment and the fog of emotional hysteria. You think, well, maybe the boy was just comatose or non-responsive. Maybe they made a mistake. After all, Eliah is poor and uneducated and probably prone to superstition. Yet I'm sure they said the same things about Mary Magdalene and Peter. Why is it that there's something within us that wants just as much to not believe as it does to believe? It's because resurrection changes the game. If that story is true, then the way that you see the world has to change. Resurrection challenges what we think we know about the world. It challenges what we think is possible and impossible. It doesn't fit nicely into any box that you have or situate itself comfortably in any category. It requires a belief in a power that we can't see, a power we can't control, and a power that is not constrained by the one thing that we know is certain in this life, death. Resurrection is that place where belief and unbelief slam together, and it imposes itself on how you view the world. Resurrection demands a new normal. And Easter reminds us that we claim a story with a resurrection at the very heart of it. The very integrity and credibility of our faith rests 100% on resurrection. We're given a story that's so extraordinary that it can't be accessed by certainty. It can only be accessed by faith. And we're called to live by that resurrection and proclaim it to the world so that the world may believe in the resurrected Son of God. We're called to tell that story to every single person, to a skeptical, scientific world that demands facts and evidence, and yet neither you or I could ever prove it at all. And yet... The call remains the same. Just like Elias' son, this gospel story is one that can only be told. And therefore, it can only be received by faith. And if we feel that tug of doubt and unbelief as Christians to the story of Elias' resurrected son, how much more so would the world believe you or I about the resurrected son of God? 
Yet the command to proclaim that resurrection lies over us all. Because it's through the church that God the Father says to the world, I have resurrected my son. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? In light of that, then maybe the resurrection isn't just an event that we believe in, but also a power that is at work in this world. A power that demands a new normal. How do we as Christians live in light of a game-changing resurrection? How does resurrection give us a new normal? Today we're finishing our sermon series by faith where we've looked at each of the times in the Bible we see the phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. And the last time we see it is here in Hebrews 10. It's written to a struggling church that's facing all sorts of challenges and hardships. They were having a dark Saturday, 2020 kind of year. At one time, their faith had been vibrant and alive and their church is full. But challenges arose that brought them to a place of despair and to the edge of falling away. Why? Because faith became hard. And they are shrinking back. We know we can struggle in our faith as individuals. But it's the story here in Hebrews that reminds us we can also struggle as a people. That doubt and despair and unbelief are contagious. Our collective faith can run cold and we can so easily shrink back in the face of adversity, trial, and uncertainty. And for them, their unbelief brought them to the verge of falling back into Judaism and offering sacrifices again. They struggled to believe that God could be so gracious to provide one sacrifice for all sin, for all time, through Jesus Christ. So they're falling back into old, predictable patterns to help them deal with their guilt and their shame. They're shrinking back to something more believable, something a little more controllable. They also faced persecution for being Christian. They lived in a world that didn't make it easy on them. They lived in a world that didn't share their values and was hostile towards their faith. They felt small, outnumbered, and insignificant. And since Judaism was allowed in the Roman Empire, they thought maybe they'd go back to it because it was safer and it was more secure. And in the face of that persecution, they stopped meeting together for worship to keep from drawing attention to themselves. They're shrinking back. Why? Because they were only looking at life through their circumstances. They were allowing their circumstances to determine what was possible, what they should do, how they should live. Their circumstances were imposing a new normal for how they lived. And it was causing them to quietly privatize their faith, to pull away from an unwelcome world, to disconnect from one another. And they're shrinking back into pre predictable patterns of personalized religion that didn't require so much faith. They're shrinking back 
and falling away one by one. And to them, the author of Hebrews writes a message that rings loud and clear. He says, stop living as though your God is still in the grave. Do not shrink back in the face of your struggles. For we are those that live by faith. Do you not know who your God is? Do you not know what your God does? Our faith rests in a God that brings life from death, hope from sorrow, joy from mourning. So when all you see is difficulty and devastation, then cling to hope by clinging to your God. And you can ask in faith, my God, what new life might you bring from these ashes? He wants them to see that as Christians, our normal is not determined by our circumstances our normal is determined by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because that's what's true in good seasons and bad. That's what's true on the sunny days, the shipwrecks and the dark nights of the soul. That's what anchors us and roots us in something unchangeable, immovable, and irreversible. The resurrection is our normal. What God has done and is doing and will do through Jesus Christ, for in him all things are being made new, even when it feels like all things are falling in apart. Because this gospel does not bend to the circumstances of this world, it is the world that will bend to the gospel. That's why he reminds them in verse 25 to remember that the world is rushing towards that great day, towards that capital D day when the resurrected Christ will return and bring all things into subjection under his feet and the world is narrowed down to a simple answer to a simple question, I have resurrected my son. Do you believe it? He wants the resurrection to be their normal, to shape how they live and to become a people that see everyone and everything around them through the hope and power of the resurrection. But to be that kind of people, they have to see Jesus. They have to see that the resurrected Jesus fills all of those spaces from which they are shrinking back. He doesn't want them to look at those spaces through their circumstances, but to see them through the resurrected Christ. And that first space that he wants them to see is that Jesus fills that space between them and God, a space from which they've shrunk back in unbelief. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. For he who promised is faithful. Before that space between them and God was an untraversable chasm, but through the resurrected Jesus, the way is open and it is open wide. He is the great high priest that intercedes for them. 
He's the one that sees their suffering. Their sacrifices they want to go back to are dead, but Jesus is the sacrifice that lives. He is the new and living way to God, and he's saying, do not let your circumstances silence your prayers, because where do all those prayers go? Through Jesus Christ, they go directly to the throne of the Father who has removed every obstacle between him and you so that he might hear your voice. Do not shrink back, but run by faith to that sacred space opened by the resurrected Jesus. He fills that space between you and God. He also wants them to see that the resurrected Jesus fills that space between them so that they see the resurrected Jesus when they look at one another. They are the people that share in his life. They're united together in him. So he says, don't forsake meeting together. Because when you're together, that's how you experience the life that you share in Christ. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Let faith strengthen the faith. The faith of one strengthen the faith of another. You can't do it on your own. You need one another. Do not shrink back, but run towards one another because the resurrected Christ binds you together. So stand firm, stand fast together by faith. And that last space that Jesus fills is that space between them and the world. He wants them to consider their future by remembering their past. He says, don't you remember those former days when you endured hard struggles? Don't you remember when you suffered together, when you were publicly humiliated? Don't you remember when you stood firm and steadfast with those who were persecuted? Do you remember when you had compassion upon those in prison? Do you remember when you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because you knew that you had a better and abiding possession. Hebrews, do you not remember those days? He's asking them to remember the past because he's implying a very simple question. When you did those things, Hebrews, did not your faith feel alive? Did it not feel real in those moments? Why? It's because the resurrected Christ fills that space between you and the world. Your heart burned within you because he was with you. So do not shrink back from the world. Run towards it. He's with you. His power is displayed through you. Be reminded that he's the one that says that as often as you do it to the least of these, he's where? He's there because he says you've done it unto me. He's the one that promises in the Great Commission, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age and to the ends of the earth. I won't leave you. I won't forsake you because I fill that space between you and the world. Do not shrink back, but run towards it by faith and know that you will meet me there. It's in these three spaces that the author is giving them a resurrection vision of life. So that whether they look up at God, they look towards one another, or they look to the surrounding world, they see everything through the resurrected Jesus. This is how the resurrection becomes their normal. 
This is how they live by a hope that transcends circumstance. This is how they live by faith. This is how they become a people that display the power of the resurrected Christ to the world. It's through this kind of people that the Father puts the world to a question. I have resurrected my son. Do you believe it? And might we have that same resurrection vision of life? Rockwall Press. It's been a long year. A year of disconnection, disappointment, discouragement. A year we don't understand. A year the world has changed. A year we've lost so much. A year we've laid two of our own to rest. A year we wish we could forget. A year we can't ignore. It's a year that has challenged us all in our faith, myself included. I can't tell you how many times I just sat in this room in silence and struggle over the last year. It's a year that shaped us and impacted our lives and confronted us with circumstances that make us feel the same impulse as these Hebrew Christians. We feel that impulse to shrink back, to pull away, and to adopt a normal that's far more shaped by despair, discouragement, discontent, and unbelief. And we live as though our best days are now just memories, as though what was lost will never be restored. So we can look at one another and think that, oh, well, those are the people I used to do life with. Or we can think about worship and settle into a rhythm where we think about worship as though it's more like a wake. Where we are just remembering someone who's deceased and all the good things they did in life. We can look at the world with contempt and confusion and something from which to pull away. We know that impulse to shrink back and let our circumstances take over. And when that happens, the first casualty is hope. And all that's enough to make you think and wonder, how will the future look? What does the future hold? Well, I'd like to begin that future today by saying, forget all that. By God's grace, our future together will be one defined by the hope and power of the resurrection. Because we know how this story goes and we know the story that God tells. Because the hope that tells us, the hope we have is that God is faithful despite what our circumstances tell us. Sometimes he creates darkness so that he can reveal his light. Sometimes he breaks down so that he can rebuild. Sometimes he brings heartache so that he can heal. Sometimes he brings death so that he may bring new life. We know how the story goes. We know what the future holds. Eventually, the window black will come down. The light will come in because he is faithful. We can have a future that lays hold of exactly what Hebrews is telling us. To not shrink back, but to move forward by faith towards God, towards one another, and to the world around us. Because we know that in each one of those spaces, we will meet the resurrected Christ. In the same way that this author would have the Hebrews lay hold of that future by encouraging them to remember the past, let us do the same. 
Let us remember our past and ask, has not God been faithful? Do you remember last fall when we spent all fall in a season of prayer? How in the midst of our circumstances, we asked God to move among us. We asked God for more. We asked God to move. We asked him for conversions. We asked him for baptisms. We asked for him to open doors of opportunity to minister and to take the word, the word of God and the hope of resurrection to the world around us. We prayed as men. We prayed as women. We prayed corporately. In the midst of all of that confusion, our request was simple. We asked that God would reveal his glory among us. And we will continue to pray those exact same prayers as we look to the future. Because those are not prayers that we just pray every now and then. May those prayers be at the heartbeat of our church. Because by faith, we believe that the resurrected Christ gives us access to the Father. And every obstacle has been removed so that we might come boldly with bold requests, regardless of situation or circumstance. Because he is faithful. Do you remember how we prayed that God would unite us together as a church? In a time of division, we asked that God would make us of one mind and one mission, that our unity in Christ would transcend the dividing lines of our day, that we would remain firm and steadfast together because this family is precious, it is worth fighting for and praying for. And for the better part of the last year, the leadership of this church has looked to that future with a renewed sense of urgency and recommitment to being the people that God calls us to be. We have adopted a plan to move into the future that goes all in on building community in this body of faith and to double down on relationships in a time of disconnection. Because it is not a time to shrink back, but to remember the resurrected Christ fills that space between you and I. Do you remember how we prayed for our community and our neighbors? Do you remember how we walked the streets and prayed that God would move in the world around us? It's not a time to shrink back when the world is so hungry for the hope of resurrection. They don't want proof of resurrection. They want the power of the resurrection. And who will go to them? Only those that have the hope of resurrection within them. And my friends, as we prayed those things, has not God been faithful? In the midst of all of those prayers, he has grown our family in ways that I can't explain. There are so many new faces in this church over the last year. If that's you, I want you to know this. We didn't know it at the time, but we were praying for you. We ask God to reveal his glory among us, and he brought us you. I don't know why, but I have a hope. It's so that we might experience the resurrected Christ together. And do you remember what feels like a lifetime ago? Whenever we merged with Christ's covenant. And there was a chance that the Hispanic portion of their congregation would be joining us as well didn't turn out that way. But do you remember the buzz and the excitement at just the possibility? Do you remember that spirit among us that wanted to cross those boundaries and those dividing lines in love and to love well? 
And we haven't forgotten that. Every week, our staff prays that God would open those doors to us again. That we would be able to minister to the Hispanic community around us. Why? Because he gave us that spirit and that desire to do so. And we ask him to honor it within us and to not let it go. We want to look upon that with the eyes of faith. And as we started to look around and as we began to pray that very prayer, we started to put the pieces together because it was right under our nose the whole time. God had already been putting the pieces in place, but we could only see it with the eyes of faith. Because it just so happens that Chef Kenny is the mayor of Mobile City down the street. And Mobile City is predominantly Hispanic. And they love Kenny. They trust him. And they know Mark. I think that's a great starting point. So in a few weeks, we're going to have a man time in Mobile City. We're going to smoke up a ridiculous amount of ribs and fellowship with them. And then we're going to invite them and their families to a worship service the following Sunday night. And we have the pieces in place to do so that God has begun to shape together. We have Aaron Ellis, who can lead some songs in Spanish. We've been brought people that are fluent in Spanish to be able to speak it to them in their heart language. Zach Milstead, Lois Sprague, Katie Welch, that list goes on. And it just so happens that the Lord brought us Marty Hutchison, who just so happens to teach young women how to cook traditional Mexican cuisine, and she has agreed to make up a king's ransom worth of tamales so that we can have a fellowship meal after we worship together. Why? Because the resurrected Christ fills that space between us. Do we need any other reason? And I asked Kenny, do you think they'll come? He said, oh yeah, I'm inviting everybody. And might we meet them with resurrection hope? Because my friends, we can't prove the resurrection. But by faith, we can be a people that display the power of the resurrection. When we view all things through the hope, the power, and the possibility of the resurrected Christ. May he be our normal. Because all of this certainly proved true with our friend Eliah. Because whatever happened to him? He was given a new normal that day. That normal was now him going around and proclaiming this resurrected Jesus to every village he came across. Which meant that now it was him who was getting beaten with sticks and left for dead with the scars to show for it. But here's the thing that pushes back against our doubt and unbelief and what is undeniable. Do you think that he would endure all of that if there was any doubt in his mind as to what happened? Getting beaten with sticks is a great time to rethink and reconsider whether or not you believe in what puts you there in the first place. No, he can't prove it. He can't prove what happened, but the way he lives testifies to something that you cannot ignore. 
It's by his life that he has shown something different. It's by the way that he lives, he testifies that something happened. And since that day, life has followed with him through conversions, through baptisms, through new churches and new life all throughout the deep forest. That's his new normal. It's a life that's shaped by the hope, power, and possibility of resurrection. May that be so of us, RPC. That by his grace, our life together would testify to resurrection hope and power and that we would put the world to a question. I have resurrected my son. Do you believe it? Let's pray.